Genesis chapter 18, we'll start in verse 1, of course, and we're going to work our way down through um, the first 15 verses this morning. But a few weeks back, if you remember, uh, and if you don't, that's okay, because it was just a side comment in one of the sermons uh, when we were discussing the angel of the Lord, uh, I mentioned that it, that was probably, and it's often referred to as that this was a, a pre-incarnate uh, Christ, um, that it actually was uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, it was a theophany, as they are called, which is just a, a fancy way of saying that it was a pre-incarnate uh, Christ or Christ before His earthly ministry, pre-incarnate uh, before he took on flesh. And I mentioned that we would kind of unpack that a little bit more later. Because it does come up again. It does happen again. Uh, Genesis is not the only place where there was a, a theophany. Um, but in Genesis 18, it comes up again. And we are going to unpack that a little bit. And that's really going to be where we spend the first few minutes of this sermon. Because I I do believe that it is worth taking some time to... To think about and connect some dots because I do know that understanding this will, this will strengthen our faith. This will encourage our faith um, as we consider that once more, Christ has been here all along. Christ did not come on the scene at his birth. Uh, Christ was there at creation. All things were created through him. And Christ has been among his people, there with his people, you could say. Uh, the entire time. Okay. So in verse 1. We read. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Which do make a brief note there. Uh, this is the third time now that the oaks of Mamre. Or, or the terabith trees. Uh, are coming up in the life of Abraham. And so pick up that pattern. Here again. Uh, Abram, Abraham is going to, to hear from the Lord. Near the terabith or the oaks at at Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, 
for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And so here we have this encounter with, with Abraham and, and the three the three visitors uh, that are there. But one of them being the, the angel of the Lord speaking to him. And so, again, we would refer to these as theophanies. Um, and appearing or... Uh, the, the showing up of Christ that's pre-incarnate, before He took on flesh and was born in the manger. Uh, so theophany, fancy word, but pre-incarnate, pre-earthly ministry, appearance of Christ. We have one here. Earlier, we actually have the angel of the Lord speaking with Hagar, uh, the mother of, of Ishmael. Uh, but also, real quick, if you would, turn to Exodus chapter 3. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Probably a very familiar passage of Scripture for, uh, for the majority of us here. We know that Moses received uh, a message from God, but was interacting with God or interacting with the Lord uh, at this burning bush episode. But notice what is actually said here in chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. And that's another instance where it says the angel of the Lord was interacting with Moses there. If you were to look, you don't have to turn to these next two. But if you were to look at Joshua chapter 5, when Joshua meets the, the commander of the armies of the Lord, he is told the same thing. Take off your sandals, your own holy ground. And then when you think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and then behold, there was a fourth, and the fourth was like unto the Son of God. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, you have these, what are again, what are referred to as theophanies. But we as Christians, we as believers, uh, we would say, well, well, we look at these and we are confident that these are the uh, appearances of Christ, even yet still in the Old Testament. And one would say, well, that's one thing to think that. It's one thing to come to that conclusion. But where's the proof? Because it's one thing to say, oh, well, this was probably Jesus. This had to be Jesus. This was a representation of Christ. This is the appearing of Jesus in the Old Testament. But is that accurate? Did the apostles think that way? Did the disciples think that way? And to that, I would say, I'm glad you asked. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because it would be a very... It would be a, a very poor interpretation or and a very poor conclusion to come to if we believed something that the apostles, the, the authors of the New Testament... Uh, the disciples, the follower of, of Christ in the early church, if we believed or if we came to the conclusions that they did not hold to, 
that would actually be a sign that we were heading in the wrong direction. That we were heading away from Scripture. But notice what, what Paul says here in his first letter to the church at Corinth in chapter 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So, we see there that even Paul, Paul looks back at the Exodus and says, that rock that followed them is Christ. It's Jesus. It's the Lord. So, when we pair that with Exodus chapter 3, Moses interacting and the angel of the Lord speaking with him, we say, okay, well, Paul believed this to be the Christ. And even as they were going through the wilderness, Paul believed it was Christ that was with them. That rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Also in John 8, you don't have to turn there. We read there uh, for our scripture reading before the service uh, fully began this morning. Um, And there Jesus actually tells uh, the Pharisees, the Jewish people that He's interacting with, He tells them point blank, Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he says, before Abraham was, I am. So that is Jesus saying, I am God. I am the Lord. And remember, that is precisely what Moses was told. Well, say that I go back to Egypt. Who am I supposed to tell the Hebrews has sent me? And God says, you tell them I am has sent you. And in John chapter 8, Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus is claiming to be the eternal God. And so this leads us to what I'm going to have to make a brief discussion for our purposes this morning. The doctrine of the Trinity. We as Christians would say that we hold to the fact that God is one being, but there are three distinct persons within the being of God. The Father... The Son and the Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. However, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Son is not the Father. And you go all the way around with that as well. So we believe in the Trinity. Three in one. To which many people, even people who profess to be Christians, will say, well, we're Christians, but you'll never convince us that that God is three in one. There's too much contradiction and confusion and there's too much there. We don't believe that. And I will say this for all of us. You have never heard a perfect illustration of the Trinity. You've never heard a perfect analogy or uh, um, a perfect uh, metaphor or anything that has tried to describe the Trinity. The Trinity is one of those things that it is it is difficult for us to even begin to wrap our minds around. How can God be three in one? And somewhere along the line, you've probably heard things like, well, think about water. Sometimes water is liquid. Sometimes if it's frozen, water is a solid. And then with steam, water is a vapor, but it's all water. Well, that's not a good illustration of the Trinity. That's actually, that would be more akin to something, uh, what is called modalism, which is a heresy, right? And I'm going to try not to lose y'all. I'm going to try not to go... 
too deep with all of this. But if you've ever heard somebody try to use water to give you an explanation of the Trinity, it's a poor explanation. Perhaps you've heard the illustration that uses an egg. Well, in the egg, you've got the shell, then you've got egg whites, and then you've got, you've got the white of the egg, and then you've got the yolk. Well, that one ultimately falls short because the shell itself is not the egg. The yolk itself is not the egg. The egg whites are not the... Those are all parts of the egg. And so that falls short because the Father is fully God. Jesus is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. They're not just part of God. And then together they make one complete God. No. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. So... I know growing up with me, the egg thing, I heard that one a lot. Maybe you've never heard either of those illustrations. I'm looking, I'm not saying this to pick. I'm saying this as a general truth. I'm seeing some faces that the, the look is, we've never heard any of those. And that's fine too. But those are a couple of really popular things that get thrown out there. Like, I'm going to try to explain the Trinity to you. Think about water. Think about an egg. All of those fall short. And worse yet, some of them not only fall short, some of them actually... Even if it's unwillingly or unintentionally support heretical views of the Trinity. But we hold to the fact that the Father is God and the Father is eternal. The Son is God and the Son is eternal. The Son has always been. The Spirit is God and the Spirit is eternal. You say, well, where in the world can we begin to unpack that? If you're still in John chapter 8, look at John chapter 1. I'm... You don't have to turn there. I'm literally just going to read the first couple of verses from John chapter 1. And then tie it back to Genesis. And we'll slowly make our way back to Genesis chapter 18. But again, this is worth considering, especially if some of us have never considered these things before. John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we, we read that, we look at that, and we ought to think, okay, well, there it is. The Word was with God, so the Word is separate, but the Word is God, so the Word is equal with God. All things were made through Him. Okay, well, that takes us right back to Genesis. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we look at that and we say, well, this the Word here, because later John goes on to say the Word took on flesh. The Word is Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was, is God. So He's always been. And we know the rest of the Scripture, as, as things are explained to us, we know that the Father sent the Son... And when the Son ascended, the Son sent the Comforter, sent the Spirit. And so we have this unity. The Father, Son, and Spirit, they all have their, their roles to play in redemption, in salvation. But they are not disjointed. The Spirit is not trying to accomplish what the Spirit wants to accomplish. The Son is not trying to accomplish what the Son wants to accomplish. The Son is in subjection under obedience to the Father. And the Spirit, He doesn't even speak things of His own accord or whatever He wants to say. The Spirit only speaks and shares things that He has heard, that He has been told to share. And so there's this submissiveness and this unity within 
the Godhead. When we are told that God is love, we should consider to, a, to an extent the Trinity within that. The love that the Father has for the Son. The love that the Son has for His people in sending the Spirit, the Spirit that raises them up and seals them and preserves them until the day of their redemption. God is love. God has eternally existed as love. So I know that some of these concepts, if we were to sit on them and think about them, they start to get really deep really fast. But it is worth mentioning here in Genesis 18, when we're talking about the angel of the Lord. If anybody ever asks you, I was asked this question just a couple of months, well, not even two months ago. Well, where was Jesus in the Old Testament? We ought to have an answer for that. That should not be a gotcha question for Christians. Well, where was Jesus in the Old Testament? We should be able to say, well, okay, let's go to Genesis 18. Let's go to Exodus 3. Let's go here. Let's go here. Let's go to John 1. Let's look at John 8. What do you mean, where was Jesus? Jesus has always been. Let's look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 says that all things were created through the Word. So we go all the way back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we know that God spoke, commanded things. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. And Jesus is the very Word of God. We see uh, evidences, allusions, pointers to the Trinitarian truth of God right out of the gate. And so we should have answers for things of that nature. Uh, And again, the Father, Son, and Spirit are not in contradiction to one another. They are in unity, but they each have their distinct roles within redemption, within salvation. And just to point that out clearly, again, you don't have to turn there, but I would encourage you to write these down. In Ephesians chapter 1, honestly, it's the entire chapter. But just to recap it briefly. In Ephesians chapter 1, we are told plainly that the Father has chosen us. The Father chooses us in Christ. The Son redeems us. The Son purchases us. He saves us. The Spirit seals us. Okay? So, the Father chooses us. The Father has chosen a people for His own possession. The Son saves those people, redeems those people. The Son atones for the sins of the people of God, the children of God. (coughs) And the Spirit regenerates. The Spirit raises us up. The Spirit seals us and sanctifies us until the day of redemption. Another place you can look to that is much shorter than the entire chapter of Ephesians 1, but it really does the exact same thing. 1 Peter Chapter 1, just read verses 1 through 3. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit for the sprinkling of blood, the blood of Jesus. And you see the Trinity right there and you see how that works out within salvation. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for the sprinkling of blood and obedience to the Son. So that's a much shorter 
uh, summary, summation of, of the roles of the Trinity within salvation. And again, you could just consider the Father sent the Son for salvation to accomplish the work of the Father. When Christ ascended, He sent the Spirit. And all of that is going to, to culminate in God's people being with Him in glory forever. And so just some, some brief comments there. And you may say, well, Caleb, that didn't feel brief. And now my head's spinning and now I'm thinking about the Trinity. And it... I would encourage you to consider thinking about the Trinity. Not during this exact sermon where you just tuned me out. But do think about the Trinity. Do think about the, fa- the fact that Christ has always been there. Christ is uncreated. He is eternal. And these things are important to our Christian faith. You say, well, well okay, why? Why is it important for us to know that Christ has, has always been there? Because that is truth. It is a truth that is revealed to us from the Word of God. If God desires for us to know it and to understand it, then it's worth knowing correctly. Amen. Furthermore, there has been... There have been heresies, there have been false teachings that try to downplay the role of Christ, that try to downplay um, Christ and who He is. And all, all false teachings ultimately end up doing harm and doing damage to the very gospel that we believe and that we preach. So it is worth understanding these things correctly. If we want to give Christ the highest praise and the highest glory, then we need to know Him as He is. If we want to give the Father the highest praise and highest glory, we need to know, know Him as He is. If we want to praise the Spirit and, 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 and glorify the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit, then we need to know the Spirit as He is. And all of this culminates in us giving God Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, giving God the highest glory and the highest praise when we know Him as He has revealed Himself. And where has God revealed Himself to His children? The Word. Yes, He has revealed Himself in creation. But that is a common grace that all people experience. Where has God revealed Himself to His children? Where He can be known in, an, in a way that is intimate that, that people of the world, non-believers, can never know. Where has He revealed Himself and actually given us a record of how He has revealed Himself? In His Word. It is important to know that Jesus is no less God than the Father is God. And He has always been. And so here, it's actually three people who appear uh, to Abraham, which I believe it was Augustine. Some people have... Some people have tried to make a Trinitarian proof out of the fact that three men were there at the tent. I don't believe there's enough there to say that, oh, well, that represents the Trinity there were three. Two, um, two are noted later on as messengers or angels, but one is noted as angel of the Lord. And the way in which he speaks, I will do this, I will do that. The fact that he knew that Sarah was laughing and she wasn't even uh, in the presence there within, within view, and he had no way to read her facial expression or to hear her, she was aside. But yet he knew that she had laughed and said in her heart that it can't be done. So take note of these things. I do want to take note as well of Abraham's hospitality. It might seem like, oh, well, Abraham just was trying to be a nice guy. 
And he was being very hospitable. But notice that he ran to them and he pleaded with them. You know, don't go on your way. Stay here. I will host you and then you can go on your way. But but stay here. Okay. So getting up out of the tent and running to people was obviously... Abraham knew that he was dealing with somebody who was of higher status or higher rank than he was. And he refers to him. He says, Lord, oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So even the way in which he speaks, he's understanding, I am um, I am of lower rank, of lower status than whoever I'm dealing with here. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread. That you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And they, uh, they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went. He gave Sarah some orders. Uh, he, gave, uh, he gave some other orders for the, the calf to be cooked uh, to a young man who prepared that. But then Abraham himself, he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared. He set it before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So standing near them is taking the place of a servant. I will tend to your needs. I'm here for you. I'm here to take care. I'm waiting on you. Uh, think about some fancy restaurants still do this. I think I think I've heard that the Pink House in Savannah still does this. Once your waiter brings your stuff to the table, they go over to the wall and they stand there. And they watch you. And as soon as your glass needs a refill, they're at the table and they're refilling. They, they go and stand. They don't take a seat. And they don't go to the back and dilly-dally. They stand up against the wall and they wait on you. When you're done and you... Put your silverware down. They come and they take that plate. And then they go back to their station and they wait. So Abraham is standing here. Waiting upon them. Hosting them. Being hospitable. Me as a, as a pastor. It, it brings to mind that in Timothy. One of the requirements of a pastor is to be hospitable. And, and that would be something that we could look at. And say well why is that of utmost importance? Just to be, to be hospitable. You know to be, to be caring. To be a good host. Like why would that be something that is. But you see here, you could look at this and say, well, he gave him bread. He gave him food, but he gave him bread. He gave him water. He took, he took care of them. These, these would have been men that would have been believed to have been travelers and they needed a place to rest. They needed a place to stay. And Abram was more or less taking them in or at the very least hosting them for their meal before they went on their way. And he was showing kindness and compassion. And even that is just a small snapshot and picture of the compassion of, of Christ. The compassion that Christ had on those who were hungry and he fed them when the disciples just wanted to send them on their way. He said, no, we're going to feed them. You're going to feed them. We know that Jesus is the bread of life. He is living water. And you say, well, well, perhaps that is why being hospitable is so important and, and why, it's, why it's even noted here that Abraham was such a great host and, and took these people in and took care of them. It's more of a practical, well, this is how... We should treat those who are in need or those who are weary or those who are traveling. We should be hospitable. We should care for those. So I wanted to note Abraham's hospitality there. And now we come back to uh, the angel of the Lord that was there. The authority with which he speaks. Where is Sarah your wife? This is verse 9. Where is Sarah your wife? And Abraham said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife will have a son. Now that's that's the exact same thing that had already been told to Abraham. 
when Abraham said, here's Ishmael, just use Ishmael. The Lord said to Abraham, I'll return about this time next year and you'll have a son. Now it's Sarah. Abraham and, uh, and Sarah were advanced in years. We talked about that a good deal uh, two weeks ago. Not last week, two weeks ago. But notice the authority. I will surely return to you about this time next year. Sarah, your wife, will, will have a son. There's authority there. Only God has the authority to say, I will give you a son. I will give you a daughter. I will do this. I will do that. The one speaking to him is surely the Lord. Sarah was listening and now this is where Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That's a threefold objection, right? To the natural mind, we would say, okay, well, they're old. They're advanced in years. And the icing on the cake is the way of the woman has already ceased with Sarah. There ain't no way Abraham and Sarah are having a child. Outside of some kind of supernatural, miraculous intervention, they're not having a child. But that intervention is exactly what happens. <clears throat> but Sarah heard this. And she laughed, saying, After I am worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And she thinks she's having this conversation with herself. And notice, the text actually makes that clear. Sarah laughed to herself, saying... So Sarah's not in the same room right now. And she's having a conversation with herself. But the Lord said to Abraham... Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? That shows his authority. That shows the fact that the one that Abraham is in the presence of knows the heart of men. He knew Sarah's heart. He knew exactly what had just happened. Why did Sarah laugh and say that there's no way I can bear a child? <clears throat> is anything too hard for the Lord? And we'll come back there and that's where we're going to close. But at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And that's always get, giving me a chuckle. You think you're in the presence of somebody who knows what you just did. And yet you still try. I didn't do that. It reminds me of, <clears throat> you know, the, the proverbial child with cookie crumbs or brownie around his mouth and there's a, there's a big chunk missing out of the fresh pan of brownies that mama just made. and You say, who ate the brownies? Who took a brownie before dinner time? And the child comes in, guilty as can be, evidence is on the face, and the child says, I didn't do it. You say, Why would you even try? You got brownie all over your face. There's a big swap missing out of, the, out of the brownie pan. Just say that you ate the brownies, kid. Why would you even try to lie? Or try to lie. It's almost like you want to say, Sarah, why would you even try that? Are you serious? Uh, wasn't me. I didn't laugh. Must have been one of my servants. Uh, the foolishness there, the silliness of that. And yet, I could make a point there and say that we oftentimes do the same thing. We, we convince ourselves that maybe we have something that's hidden from God and we've got it under control and it's ours and we'll take care of it. And yeah, we know we probably shouldn't be thinking that way or probably shouldn't be doing those things, but we, we've got ourselves convinced that I, I didn't do that. I'm not, I'm not doing that. That's not what I'm doing. Nope. But rather, I want to 
end the sermon on the point of, is anything too hard for the Lord? I knew that in bringing up the Trinity and kind of bringing up the, the topic of theophanies and everything else, again, that it could get real deep real fast. And so I want to just end here on a, on a topic I know that we can all say wholeheartedly, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. But I want to spend just a few minutes really contemplating that and connecting that with the rest of Genesis that we have studied so far. Was creating everything out of nothing too hard for the Lord? Was cursing the serpent and cursing the ground because of the sin of man too hard for the Lord? And, And let that one... That one's something we often... Literally... Cursing the serpent and cursing creation. Was creation too hard for the Lord? No. Was cursing the entire creation too hard for the Lord? No. Why? Because He has full authority over everything. Was guaranteeing that the head of the serpent would be crushed too hard for the Lord? Was the defeat of sin and death ultimately crushing the head of the serpent? Was the defeat of sin and death itself too hard for the Lord? Was the preserving of the godly line of Seth too hard for the Lord? Was judging the entire world with a flood too hard for the Lord? Was preserving one family out of all of the earth while He judged the world with a flood too hard for the Lord? Was destroying the Tower of Babel and dispersing all of the people groups of the world and confusing the languages Was that too hard for the Lord? Was calling Abraham away from his father's house and ordaining that he would be the first one in the line of Israel, the father of a great nation, was that too hard for the Lord? To call out a people for his own possession? Was providing a promised son to Abraham and Sarah Too hard for the Lord. Which that is the direct question that we're dealing with here. Is that too hard for the Lord? But let us once more unpack that. I know you've heard me do this already. I want to do it once more because we really... They were advanced in years. Abraham was nearly a hundred years old. The way of, of women had left Sarah. But furthermore, even even when the way of the woman was with Sarah, she was barren. Was it too hard for the Lord to give them a child? Was providing Christ for the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people too hard for the Lord? Was that too hard for God? No, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. Is forgiving sin too hard for the Lord? We hear people say that sometimes. Well, before I start coming to church or before I get saved, I, I need to clean up my act. I need to get my stuff together before I come to... Is forgiving sin too hard for the Lord? Is redeeming people too hard for the Lord? Why do you need to clean yourself up first? Is he not? Can He not handle it before you clean yourself up? Is providing a covering too hard for the Lord? Go back to Adam and Eve now. They had sown their own fig leaves. Bless their hearts. Thought they could fix the problem themselves. And they were hiding from God. 
But there was a sacrifice made and God provided coverings for Adam and Eve with that sacrifice that was made. Oh yeah, that's right. Picture of the gospel right there in Genesis 3. Is making a covering too hard for God? Does God not still cover His children except now we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Is this too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do we live our lives with that confidence? Do we live our lives, our daily interactions, our daily thoughts, our daily ideas, our daily conversations, our daily actions, do we live our life with that confidence? There's nothing too hard for the Lord. The Lord that is my Savior. The Lord that has given me eternal life. There is nothing too hard for Him. He has saved me and now I serve Him. And there is nothing too hard for Him. Whatever fear or doubt or anxiety that I could possibly have is not too hard for Him. Whatever sin struggle I believe myself to have or whatever struggle, whatever fight that I have been in, Spiritually, is it too hard for the Lord? Of course not. But do we live our lives in faith of that truth? Do we really have faith that that's true? If we do, then once more I ask, as I I have asked throughout this study, why do we fear? Why do we doubt Why do we lack faith? Why do we sometimes laugh or chuckle to ourselves when somebody might remind us of the promises of God and we might say, I know that's in there, but this is different. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. Well, is anything too hard for the Lord? When anyone Male, female, young, old. When anyone has a true faith, it changes the way that they live. It changes the way that they think. It even changes the way that they feel about things. Say, Caleb, how can you say that? We're given a new life. We're given a new heart. We have a renewed mind. So the way we think will be different. The way we feel or the way we process things, that'll be different. And the entire way that we live will be different. Why? Because we're not the same. If we truly believe something, it will affect the way that we live. We ought not say that we're Christian and live with the same anxiety or fear or doubt or or live in the same sin that we've always lived in, but yet we say we've got faith that Jesus is Lord and we've got faith that we've been saved. It ought not be so. But so often it is. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So, so what is something that you might be fearful about in this moment? That you might be doubting in this moment? What's an area of your life where you lack faith in this moment? What's a sin struggle that you've been carrying with you and, and you, you feel like you've been battling for years and months and days? I went backwards that time. I should have said days and months and years. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
If it's an area of sin, repent. Receive forgiveness and move on. Get up. Strengthen those weak knees. Those feeble knees. Stand up and walk. Repent. And walk in the light as He is in the light. If it's just... If, if it's just an area of struggle, like if you, if you, anxiety, fear, doubt, and that you say, well, that's just how I'm wired, that's just who I am. No. No. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That thing you're fearing, you ought not fear. Is God greater? Whatever gives you anxiety, why? Is God greater? Is He not more than whatever it is that gives you anxiety? Has He not already conquered all enemies for His children, including sin and death? Well, that's just the way I'm wired. Well, have you been born again? Well, yes, I have been born again. So you're not. don't be wired that way. Don't fall for that. That's the old man. We are to put off the old man and to put on the new man. One final note, because I do not want anybody to take what I'm saying in this direction. Do not take this and leave here today and say, Oh, that was an awesome sermon. Kate, is anything too hard for the Lord? Whew, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so I, there's been some there's some stuff in my life that I've been wanting to happen and I've been wanting to come to pass. And oh, I'm claiming it today. Because is any if is anything too hard for the Lord? Absolutely not. So I'm gonna start claiming these promises and I'm gonna start claiming this stuff because I want this and I want that. And is anything too hard for the Lord? Oh, oh no, it ain't. God, give me what I want. Now that'll preach good. Some of y'all are smiling because you're probably thinking the same thing. Man, that sounds like a lot of sermons that gets preached today. That is not what these verses mean. Do not take what I have just said and twist it and do that with this truth. But nothing's too hard for the Lord. So I can ask for this. I can go after that. I can do this and God's going to give it to me because ain't nothing too hard for God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Is God ever going to do anything for you or give you anything that is outside of His ordained will for your life? No. We do not use the promises of God. We do not stand upon the promises of God to pursue our own earthly pleasures or our own earthly desires. I need only remind us all of the model prayer. You you may refer to it as... Uh, I just forgot because I've been calling it the model prayer. The Lord's Prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer was in Gethsemane. If you really want to pinpoint a Lord's Prayer. The model prayer, when the disciples literally asked, how do we pray? Or when Jesus taught them, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does He say? My will be done. You do it for me. You give it to me. My will be done. The way that I want it. No, what, what's the prayer? What's the model prayer? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will be done. Thy will be done. Your will be done. God. And even in Gethsemane, what did Christ pray? Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. So Jesus did model that prayer. So do not take this promise, this truth, in the form of a question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Of course not. And say, well, I'm going to start asking for more stuff, and I'm going to start pursuing more stuff, because God's going to give it to me, because there ain't nothing too hard for the Lord.
whatever God's will is for your life, that only He knows the full extent of that, there is nothing, listen, there is nothing that can hinder God accomplishing His will in your life. There is no obstacle or enemy that could stand in your way that can hinder the hand of Almighty God. And you can bank on that. You can rest in that. He that has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. He is faithful. That is the confidence that we should walk with. Do you have doubt? Do you have anxiety? Do you have fear? Okay, God, what, what can I learn about you through this doubt, fear, and anxiety? You are greater. You haven't given us a spirit of fear. We can walk in confident assurance of what Christ has accomplished for us. I don't have to live this way. Is it a trial or tribulation that you're going through? God, what would you have me learn? Is this trial or tribulation for my good? Of course it is. Scripture tells us plainly that every trial and tribulation is for our good. And so we walk with the confidence that there is no trial or no tribulation that could hinder God from accomplishing His purposes in my life. And so we close with this. Turn to Jude, verse 24-25. There is no chapter. Don't ask me what chapter. Just Jude. Now, what is the will of God for our lives? That's another sermon for another time. There's a couple of different ways, I think. Not ways you could go about it, but a, a few different points to be made. But chiefly, if you look at salvation and then being with God in glory forever, what happens in between? <clears throat> our sanctification. We will be presented holy and blameless before Him in glory. That is the will of God. And there is nothing... No trial, no tribulation, no sin struggle, no doubt, no fear, no anxiety. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can come into our lives that can hinder God from accomplishing His purposes. Even if we laugh about His purposes when we hear about them. That's still not going to hinder Him from doing what He said He's going to do anyway. So this is the end goal. And this is how Jude actually comforts and gives encouragement to other believers. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Him who is able to what? Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of His glory. With great joy. We will be presented before Him in glory. And nothing can hinder that. And on the way. All trials and tribulations. All fears and anxieties. All sin struggles. Those things are working to sanctify us. So that we will be presented holy and blameless. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 23. Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Abraham is called by God and given many great promises. And we know, spoiler alert for those of you who may not be overly familiar with it, but we know that everything God promised Abraham has come to pass. And all the nations of the earth truly have been blessed through Abraham. And we can stake claim to that same promise, that same truth that he who calls us is faithful, he will surely do it. If He has called us to Himself, if He has saved us through the blood of His Son, if He has raised us up to new life through His Spirit and sealed us with that same Spirit, we will be sanctified fully. And we will be presented before Him in glory with great joy because He is faithful. Even when we laugh or doubt or fear or mock or run away or hide, He is faithful. And that is why we can rest assured we will be with Him in glory. That is why Abraham and Sarah could rest assured we really are going to have a son. That's why we can rest assured that all who believe will be saved. And all who do not believe are condemned already. Because He is the sovereign God over all creation. He has full authority, full reign, and nothing... It's too hard for Him. This is the God that we serve. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. The same God. Yesterday, today, and forever. And I pray that our faith has been strengthened. That we have received confidence and boldness in the faith. And our desire to leave here today glorifying Him and praising Him for His faithfulness. I hope that that desire has already been placed within our hearts and that we do leave here rejoicing today because of our great God and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer.